This is an ABC podcast. G'day Glads and Pods, coming to you from uh, Gadigal Country, another edition of Late Night Live. Tonight we'll go back to December 1943, when five war correspondents joined British air raids on Berlin, but only two came back to file their stories. And that remarkable engineer, Roma Agrawal, will tell us how handmade Roman nails led directly to modern skyscrapers, how the potter's wheel enabled space exploration and how humble lenses helped to conceive a child against the odds. My next guest is going to take us into the lives and deaths of five reporters who saw both sides of World War II It's also a story of how the British government embedded reporters in an attempt to promote the war effort and how the press became part of their propaganda machine. Anthony Cooper has a PhD in German civil aviation in the Weimar Republic. Anthony's the author of no less than seven books on wartime aviation. His latest, Dispatch from Berlin, 1943, the story of five journalists who risked everything. It's published by New South Books and Anthony makes his debut on the Little Widers program from Brisbane. Welcome and congratulations. Take us back to London in late 43 when the press officers of Fleet Street get a phone call from the British Air Ministry. All the press agencies in London, as throughout the world, I'm I'm sure, within... um the combatant powers, the press agencies had been desperately wanting to get basically seats in bombers. They'd been writing the story from the ground, they'd been listening to the press releases from the air ministry, they'd been interviewing air crew. But um, everyone was dissatisfied. So from their perspective, they wanted to see it firsthand. They wanted to get their bum into a bomber and um, view a raid. Finally, the phone call came in late November 1943 the Air Ministry deigned to ring five agencies and each of the agencies had an opportunity to send one person. And that's how the story begins, with that phone ringing and the excitement within the office to hear the news and then the the excitement to pick who was going to go. Let's start with the Americans, Anthony. Well, Ed Murrow was one of the five, a very, very famous man. One Um, of of my all-time heroes. Yes, quite a fellow, um, quite a journalist, quite a, um, a man in every sense. He um, was a cultural warrior in the pre-war, run up the, to the, um, the outbreak of the war. Um, he saw very clearly what the direction of Hitler's government was, which was aggressive war. And so he abandoned any thought of objectivity and he turned himself into a cultural warrior against fascism, against Nazism. And once the war actually started... He turned himself into, I guess, an organ of the propaganda machine. And he had good conscience in doing so because he knew what the stakes were. He would always start his broadcast with that impeccably timed, this is London, and sign off with his trademark, good night and good luck. Yes, he revolutionised the style of radio broadcasting. He was sent to London in order to revamp the format and in the process, he pretty well invented it as a serious sort of news medium. So um, of all people to go on the raid, this is a very preeminent journalist. And he's one of the most famous Americans in the United Kingdom. Now let's introduce Lowell Bennett. Well, Lowell Bennett was a, a young journalist. He'd only been in the trade for a year. He was a man on the make in his early 20s. A very, very likeable fellow but a bit hot-tempered, and he was in such a hurry. Um, He got an initial 
opportunity to report on the war firsthand, he went to Tunisia after the the Allied landings in uh, French uh, North Africa at the end of '42. But he was only there for a couple of months, and then they pulled him back to London. And there he was um, collating other people's news copy, which was coming in via telex from all the various reporters on the various battlefronts. And he, in his own mind, he was reduced to merely collating other people's copy for onward transmission to the syndicated agencies in the United States. And from his perspective, that wasn't good enough. He needed his byline. He needed to be the reporter out there on the front lines. And so he's itching for action. He thought the action was going to be D-Day, like everyone was expecting by the end of '43. Everyone knew on both sides that the next year would see the Allied invasion of the continent. And so from Bennett's perspective, that was going to be his next big opportunity. But instead, the phone rang, November 1943, and the word came that they were inviting someone to go on a raid. He flipped a coin with one of his competitors. Heads came up. He went. It was his big opportunity. I think it's interesting that uh, the International News Service was owned by uh, William Randolph Hearst of loving memory, a sort of a precursor to our Rupert. Yes, very much so. And the journalists seemed to like it. Um, there was an Australian fellow called um, Colin Bednall. And, um, he I, I knew a... Colin well. Oh, there you... I read his memoir and... Um, he thought it was a great privilege to be able to rub shoulders with people like that. He thought that was one of the great things of the job, whilst he was a war reporter in Britain during the war. So, um, you know, the journalists, um, I guess they might have framed it differently to the way we do now about people like Murdoch. OK. Unusually, two of the chosen uh, were Australian. One of them, a fellow called Norma Stockton. Yes, the two Australians, I think um, it is unusual that there would be two Australians in the five. Bear in mind that they had the job of um, representing not just the Australian newspapers, but newspapers throughout the entire English-speaking world, including Britain. So they had a bigger job than just reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Sydney Sun. Norman Stockton was a journalist, again, who had an itching desire to report firsthand. He'd been um, accredited to MacArthur's GHQ, during um, 42, and the closest he'd got to the action was to go up to Townsville and to interview American bomber crewmen landing after raiding Rabaul. And um, he was particularly galled that there was a journalist, uh, Harold Gard, who was a British journalist um, working under American accreditation, who was actually allowed to go on the raids. And so from Stockton's perspective, he found it galling to have to write secondhand about Harold Gard's first-hand impressions of being on these raids. He wanted desperately to go on a raid. There was no chance of that staying in the Australian theatre, so he got himself transferred to London to get closer to the action. He got closer to it than he may have wished. He'd been, of course, to North Africa to report from Tunisia, hadn't he? Yes. Like Lowell Bennett, um, similar experience. OK, now to Alf King. Well, Alf King... I think he gives me the impression of being the consummate professional. By the time he goes on the raid, he's 46, so he's well and truly the oldest of them. Most of them are in their 30s. And um, he's a very senior journalist indeed. At the Sydney Morning Herald. Sydney Morning Herald, yes. He was so preeminent that he'd already, in 1929, been the London correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald. And there he was again, doing it in 1943. So he... Um, he was a man who shouldn't have gone, really. Uh, it would seem, looking back on it, using, you know, contemporary norms, his role was to coordinate the whole thing and to send some junior journalist out on the raid. But he trumps them all, he pulls rank, and he goes himself. So um, I'm guessing, like so many of them, he was sick of the grind of the office in the newspaper office. He was sick of... I guess, processing other people's stories, he wanted to get out there again as a journalist and have the immediacy of the experience of being, being out there, first-hand reporting and getting, getting his name on the front page. But as you point out, he was a very well-informed bloke with a shrewd understanding of the big picture of Allied strategy. Yes, well, he, 
he would have been in on every briefing. He would have met every important um, general and air marshal. So he definitely knew the big picture. Perhaps the attraction for him in going on the raid was to go from the macro level down to the micro level, right down to the nitty-gritty of an actual crew, being with a crew in a bomber, um, undertaking the actual raid. That must have been a powerful attraction. Talking to Anthony Cooper, author of Dispatch from Berlin, 1943, now to the late edition of an intriguing Norwegian. Yes, well, Nordahl Grieg has been turned into a national icon. His death got him there, if you know what I mean, um, posthumous uh, fame. He's um, such an important man in Norway. That remember when that fascist um, in um, Oslo committed that uh, atrocity, that multiple fatality who atrocity? Could, who atrocity. could forget, yeah. Tellingly, the Norwegians responded to that by standing around in groups, including at the formal commemoration services, and reciting together Nordahl Grieg's poetry. Now, that gives you some sense of the cultural stature that this man has attained in Norway. At the time, he was a divisive figure. He was a pre-war communist, and um, to such an extent, indeed, that um, he had made himself notorious in the Norwegian newspapers for taking the Stalinist line against Trotsky. He was such a party man that... um, with the, uh, the pact between Hitler and Stalin, the non-aggression pact between Germany and the Soviet Union, he had towed the party line. So um, he had made himself unpopular amongst the Norwegian establishment for this. No, no surprises there. It took the invasion of Norway by Hitler's forces in 1940 to allow him to reframe the whole issue. He was already a dedicated anti-fascist. He'd been declaring... Hitler's intentions, and he'd been dissecting the kind of Hitlerian intent in the run-up to the war. But once Norway gets invaded, he becomes a cultural warrior, much like Murrow, two men who are dedicated in their own ways to the destruction of fascism and to the restoration of what they saw as, uh, I I guess, a a true culture. But Nordahl Gregg was so... He was a firebrand in a way, but he was a lovable figure as well, Um, very humane man, to the extent that if you read his poems, he's not actually embittered against individual Germans. He pities them. He knows, for example, that the German soldiers occupying Norway will return home to Germany after the war, representing a defeated, disgraced country. And he's writing that sort of thing in 1941, 1942. So he he condemns the ideology, but I guess he forgives the people who are caught up in it. Now, at this stage, Norway's government is in exile in London, and that's where he is. Yes, um, he was fluent in English. He he was an Anglophile from way back. His family was indeed, so he had very good English, very well able to operate in London as a professional, and um, a brilliant wordsmith. And uh, despite his communist um, associations... In 1942, the Norwegian government in exile, you know, overcomes their better judgment, if you like, and they permit him the accreditation of a war correspondent. And from that time on, he's an official propagandist for Free Norway, and he's an official war correspondent for the Norwegian Radio Broadcast Service, which has beamed back into occupied Norway, occupied Denmark, but also into neutral Sweden. So their radio footprint is that basically the Nordic the Nordic countries, whether occupied or not. So here he is telling Norwegian patriots like himself, and this is a declaration, they must burn in the act of resistance, even dwindle to ashes in the heroic attempt. Yes, he was quite a romantic, you'd have to say that, very intense man. Those who knew him said he was funny, lovable, not bitter. You know, um, so he, he kept it all in a fine balance. But when he had when when he heard of the other four going on this raid, he pestered the Norwegian government in exile to get the permission to join the group, because he'd already been talking about it. That was his next objective. He'd reported on the Battle of the Atlantic, and now he wanted to report on the bomber war. And you, from you've his talked about you've talked about his. Uh 
powerful poetry. I want to just quote a little here from a Dr Andreas uh, Wisnes, the uh, director of the British Norwegian Institute. There is hardly a Norwegian who has not been affected by Grieg's lovely poems. We sat listening to them all over our far-flung country during the first year of the war when our wireless sets were seized. We read them in underground newspapers. His words sent out a ray of light when the prospect looked darkest. It was our land itself that spoke to us through his verse. Well, that's a, a glowing con- commendation, isn't it? It certainly is. Um, how, did, how did he crack it for a seat? He just pulled rank, or rather he, he'd been gnawing away, trying to get permission, following the channels within the Norwegian government in exile, and he finally cracked them. His name was added to the list, and so was Colin Bednell's, by the way. So it ended up mm. being six, but Bednell didn't fly on that night. Okay, let's look at the plan for these air raids now. The Brits had already been sending sorties to Germany, led by legendary, perhaps notorious, Air Marshal Arthur Harris, known affectionately and unaffectionately as Bomber. Yes, um, the raid that the book concentrates on, well, it's the raid in which all the five, the five journalists fly, is the raid on the night of the 2nd of December 1943. That was the fifth raid in the so-called Battle of Berlin, Bomber Command's assault on Berlin. So by 43, Bomber Harris had collected a strong enough force of four-engine bombers with the navigation aids and the bombing techniques to give him confidence that they could finally return to Berlin because the last time they'd bombed it was in 1941, to return to Berlin and to smash the place. So at that stage, the cities which had been torched, included Hamburg um, only a few months before. So uh, that raid on Hamburg was, even at the time, uh, notorious. It was noteworthy. It was one of those awful firestorm raids, uh, approximately 50,000 fatalities, something in that region. And Harris wanted to do that to Berlin. He was confident confident that uh, Berlin would lead to the surrender of, uh, of Germany, making the the D-Day landing redundant. Yes, well, that was always Bomber Harris's and the Bomber lobby, that was always their delusion. Their delusion from the beginning to the end was that somehow or other, even though the British people had been able to stick it, the bombing, that is, in 1940, um, 40-41, they'd, they'd been able to rally and show the pluck that's required for a population to put up with that kind of thing and to carry on much like the Ukrainians are doing today, right? But the the conceit of the bomber lobby was to think that somehow or other the Germans would fold. And that's really what they thought. So they had this attack upon German morale, which is an entirely abstract thing. You can't measure it. There's no way that you can take a photograph of it. It's entirely in the area of belief. It's not a sort of objective physical thing. And it's not a belief that everyone shared. I remember having a, a long conversation with John Kenneth Galbraith who'd uh, spent a lot of time studying this and he always insisted that bombing alone never does it. No, well, it's perfectly clear. It's a truism now. Um, I don't think even amongst the air forces of today, I don't think there'd be anyone who believes that it will do it alone. So the doctrinal wheel has turned. But in 1943, it's the high point of this delusion, this belief. And so Harris thinks that if he can send the bombers on successive nights or as close to successive nights as possible, a series of hammer blows, he will so destroy Berlin that the people will rise up somehow or other, overthrow Hitler somehow or other, and make themselves amenable to peace negotiations. Hence his desire to have the press embedded in his Lancaster bombers. Yes, and I guess the other angle to that is he knows how expensive it is in lives. Like the, the, my raid, the raid I write about, they send out 400 bombers and 40 get shot down. 300 aircrew are lost. That's just one night. So he knows perfectly well what the butcher's bill for this whole undertaking is, and he knows that is politically sensitive. He also knows that it's politically sensitive in some conscientious circles 
to be so mercilessly and indiscriminately bombing German civilian populations. It's not as if there was no argument about that in Britain during their war. During the war, there was. Uh, Bishop Bell led um, uh, a strong argument. I think it might have been from Chichester. I might don't don't have that quite at my fingertips at the moment. But there was a serious substantive discussion within Britain about the morality of all of this. Harris, of course, was a bit of a brutalist, so he's not going to worry too much about those kinds of um, intellectual and moralistic discussions. But he nonetheless knows that he's got to guard himself politically. And so sending the journalists to write glowing first-hand reports on the front pages of newspapers is a way of, I guess, um, bringing the population on side, cowing any dissent that may be uh, emerging within Whitehall and in the wider community, getting the message out. Now, we're message. talking of a time when Waddington had become a, an Australian uh, colony, a very important base, with two Australian squadrons in residence. Yes, um, and in fact, um, number 460 squadron, um, it's uh, the premier of the Australian squadrons with Bomber Command, and um, they get three journalists. They get to um, look after Norm Stockton, Nordahl Gregg, and also Colin Bednall. So they've got three um, journalists in their officers' mess waiting around. They had to wait around for uh, four or five nights, four or five days, waiting for the weather to improve sufficiently for the operation to be launched. And so there they all are. And then on the night of the 2nd, two of those three climb into their bombers and take off. There's Colin Bednall on the ground waiting for his mates to get back in the wee small hours in the morning. Their bombers don't arrive. They wait around, you know, uh, as they did, waiting for transmissions or a phone call perhaps that they've landed at some other base. Nothing comes through. And there they are in the morning and Colin Bednall's looking at the ops board with a big blank next to the aircraft number and the captain and the crew details that are put up, chalked up on the board, realising that his two mates haven't returned and he's got to fly the next night. Think of that. I'm going to read uh, Murrow reflecting on the time, on the experience. Up in that part of England, the air hums and throbs with the sound of aircraft motors all day. But for half an hour before takeoff, the skies are dead silent and expectant. A lone hawk hovered over the airfield, absolutely still, as it faced into the wind. Jack, the tail gunner, said, it'd be nice to fly like that. Yes, he had a poetic sensibility. They all did. If you read the descriptions that the survivors give of just simple things like the takeoff, the climb what the clouds look like. When they get over Germany, they provide these descriptions of what the flak look like and then what the target look like, what the bomb explosions look like. Interestingly, all of them wanted to see it in aesthetic terms. You can see that was in their DNA. And so painting, it's odd, but painting a beautiful picture of what the exploding bombs looked like down below, that was what something they all did. They did it effortlessly. You can see the impact of the schooling, uh, the curriculum. You can see the sort of generational predilection towards um, poetry or at least romantic discourse. Different now, I think. But, um, yeah, Murrow, he saw his role not only to say what happened but what it felt like, and that's a good passage he just read. The idea, of course, was to create a firestorm, a hell like that seen in the bombing of Dresden in 1945. But as you point out, the Germans were prepared. They'd built lots of bomb shelters and they huddled collectively in cellars, rounded up by mostly female wardens. Yes, by, by the stage of this raid, clearly the Germans had, had lots of experience of having their cities bombed. And um, you'd have to say that the civilian fatalities were as low as it could possibly be. At the end of the day, most people only sheltered in their own cellars or the cellar at the bottom of their flat, their fl the block of flats, or it could be the cellar at the basement of a pub. 
those kinds of cellars, just an improvised um, underground area. Obviously, it's um, facilitated by the way that European architecture goes. It's different to Australia, of course. So hardly anyone was in a professionally reinforced and designed shelter. It was all just improvised basement cellars. But nonetheless, people got in them and people obeyed the rules. And it was only thus that you could minimise civilian casualties. Finally, let's talk about what happened to to Norm Stockton, to Ed Murrow, to Lowell Bennett, the others. Well, I guess Norm Norm Stockton. I think he was rather unlucky. He um, he had a friend on the crew. Um, they were both from Brisbane, and um, the navigator was Neville Anderson. And in the Lancaster, where the journalists stand, it's just behind the pilot, and so it's within easy arm. Um, length of um, the navigator's table. So Stockton had already made friends with Anderson and there they were flying together and he, he found it very reassuring. And Anderson throughout the flight was just looking after, you know, the guest. And um, when the aircraft was hit and the wings burning, the usual thing with um, bombers going down and everyone's um, looking for their parachutes, Anderson clips the parachute onto Stockton's chest and before they'd taken off, as a joke, they'd painted on on the parachute, property of the Sydney Sun, in white paint. And um, he actually had to use it. I suppose it must have seemed funny when they were on the ground. Trouble was the pilot um, was a bit of a press-on, regardless merchant, and he took too long giving the bailout order, and the plane just came apart before they'd started to bail out. So there were two men standing behind the pilot, Norm Stockton and Anderson, Neville Anderson. Anderson found himself flying through the air after the plane disintegrated, did the usual thing, pulled the ripcord, came to earth, and um, when they were all being collected to go into the POW system, he seemed genuinely surprised that Stockton hadn't survived. But when you think about it, with bits of metal flying everywhere, it's very much a lottery who gets out alive and who doesn't, but... And, and, and Ed Murrow might well have witnessed his uh, his colleague's fiery descent. Yes, they all were flying in the same area of sky. I think it's it's quite likely. He describes an aircraft going down precisely the same fiery cataclysmic terms as um, the loss of uh, Stockton's aircraft. Luckily, uh, uh, the American, the young American, Lowell Bennett, his aircraft is hit in similar fashion. Um, goes down in similar fashion, but luckily his pilot gave the bailout order a little bit early rather than a little bit late. And so he was uh, he and the rest of the crew were able to bail out normally through the escape hatch in the floor of the cockpit. And um, so Bennett survives. He has a um, parachute descent. It's a long story. His, his, um, his expedition throughout Germany afterwards is a story in itself. But um, there's one example anyway of a man escaping a bomber. Alf King had a dream run in his Lancaster. What happens to the Norwegian? He is like... It's a very similar situation to Stockton's death. The aircraft is almost certainly hit by a night fighter. It starts descending, it's damaged, it's burning, and uh, the pilot is sort of trying to turn to go head back towards England, and it descends through a flak zone. And the German flak gunners are waiting, and it's by now it's in a nice low altitude, right within the sort of killing parameters of flak guns, and they open fire and destroy the aircraft. It explodes in midair, and just the various bits, the fuselage comes down in one place, the wing comes down somewhere or other, and just ploughs into the ground. None of them got out, so eight fatalities. We've got no one, of course, uh, to give us the details, but there's been a bit of a forensic investigation into the details of that crash. And um, so, yeah, we can, we're able to put it all together, what did happen. Anthony Cooper, thank you very much for coming on. Anthony is author of Dispatch from Berlin, 1943, the story of five journalists who risked everything, published by New South Books. Thanks, Anthony. Thank you, Philip. Coming up now, seven small marvels of engineering that make the world go round. 
confession, beloved listener, there are some conversations with guests that linger in the mind long after you have uh, parted company. I remember my next guest confessing when she came on the Little Wireless program about five years ago now that she'd always had an almost erotic urge to stroke concrete. Not to have average conversation <laughs> opener, but then Roma Agrawal is not your average structural engineer. She's best known for, and behold it, there it is, on the horizon, the Shard, the London skyscraper that's still the tallest building in Western Europe. And since we last spoke, she's got herself a gong, an MBE, she's launched her own podcast, and she's written a butte book called Nuts and Bolts, Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way. Now, in it, Roma argues that everything from ballpoint pens and dishwashers to smartphones and the International Space Station can be broken down into seven beautifully simple components. And I'm delighted you can join us again from London, Roma. Welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. Last time we were talking about the big things, skyscrapers, cathedrals, suspension bridges, but your new book goes to the opposite end of the scale. You deconstruct mighty feats of engineering into their smallest components, the nuts and bolts, as you put it. Why the shift of focus? I wonder whether it had something to do with the pandemic. Uh, you know, the lockdowns, I just had a baby and life felt very small and restricted. Um, and so I just thought, started thinking about the random objects in my flat that I was stuck with for, you know, for months in the end. And I just wondered, well, if I took these various things apart, what are the small little elements or bits that make up these more complex pieces of technology. And I was also really interested in the fact that engineering is getting more and more complicated. Our technology feels more and more like an inscrutable black box. And I wondered how we could improve our relationship with engineering. And I figured if we could go back right down to the elements of what I think, you know, the building blocks of our technology are, then maybe that would be a good place to start. I know that as a child, you used to snap crayons in two, and during the lockdown, you deconstructed a ballpoint pen. Yes, um, my sister was less than pleased about me breaking all our crayons, but I was completely determined. I must have been about five, I think, five or six years old, and I was very determined to figure out what was inside the crayon. And, you know, it's kind of disappointing, just a bit more crayon. But ballpoint pens, as you mentioned, are a much more interesting thing to deconstruct. So, you know, there's a bit which usually which screws on. So there's a thread, which is really interesting. You've got a cartridge with a little sphere at the bottom, which as it rolls around, it pulls the ink down. And I guess my favorite part of the ballpoint pen is the spring, which, you know, allows you to click it up and down and make the pen work or switch it off, as it were. So... I think that was that's where I started. And then when I started thinking about slightly more complex things like, say, a blender or my laptop, and then went bigger and bigger into buildings, tunnels and skyscrapers, I felt like again and again I was coming back to the same seven objects. Now, Roma, you grew up in Mumbai where taking things apart was uh, very much a part of the culture. Yes, so I think in a lot of countries around the world, there is much more of a culture of repair rather than throwing away technology. So, you know, the UK is one of the biggest um, waste creators per person of electronic waste. I think we throw away about 24 kilograms per person per year on average, which is really quite shocking. Um, having grown up in India, there does seem to be much more of a culture of repairing stuff. So, you know, I definitely remember people coming in when our TV stopped working, fixing that. Um, if we had issues with our laptops, then there was, you know, a whole range of shops that we could go to to get it fixed. And and I think that that's a culture that we need to reignite a bit more in the West. Your list is as follows. The nail, the wheel, the spring, the magnet, the lens, the pump and string. Why those? I was trying to really bring it down to the most basic elements. And these were the seven that kept coming up again and again for me. 
they all serve quite different functions and purposes. So, you know, the nail is to join things together. Um, the spring is to store energy. The pump is to move liquids. And, you know, more than the seven objects themselves, I think it's the seven principles that underlie these objects, which are quite important and crucial. And I also realized after a while that, you know, I thought, oh, is the screw or the rivet or the bolt separate objects? But no, actually, they're derivatives of the nail. And so they got kind of slotted under there. So, yeah, it was a bit of a systematic engineering approach, I guess, to but, selecting the seven. But you also added to the list common in the Renaissance, didn't you? You felt that theirs came up short. The Renaissance list of the six machines was a lot about making it easier to lift and move stuff. So, you know, you had the inclined plane, for example, or the lever. And and I tried to take it even a step further back, which is, you know, what, what, what can you, what do you need in order to make a lever? You know, what do you need in order to create a screw thread and so on? So, so yeah, it's a slightly different take on what the Renaissance scientists came up with. I'm reminded of the uh, old rhyme for the want of a nail, the shoe was lost for the <laughs> want of a shoe, the horse was lost. Tell me why nails are so central. So the idea of joining two different materials or two different objects together in a robust way was once probably unthinkable, quite a radical thought, because we started off making a thing out of one other thing. So we would take a piece of stone, we would nap it, turn it into a tool, or we might take a branch and whittle it and make it into a, a spear. But the idea of actually joining different pieces together meant that we could increase the complexity of our engineering and our technology, you know, exponentially. And the nail is central to that. The nail allowed us to put two pieces of wood together, which allowed us to create furniture, homes, ships. And then if you think of the importance of, you know, our shelter, but also the huge impact that shipping had on our world, whether we look at the Atlantic slave trade or mapping out, you know, all the countries in our world or the colonialism that followed these these little objects and i guess the stuff that followed off from them have had a huge societal impact and and of course the the nail evolves into the screw which i guess improved on the nail's holding power but it must have been a hell of a lot harder to make exactly so the screw was around for a while. So the, the screw was actually used as a form of pump in ancient Egypt. And they used this idea of turning a long screw shaft around to pull water up from the rivers. So the idea had been around for a long time, but to use it as a fastener required cutting metal quite precisely, quite accurately by hand. And we did that for a while, but the screw didn't really take off as I would say the same for the rivet and the nut and the bolt until industrialization happened, until we had the metal cutting lathe and we could mass produce the stuff. So nails to screws to rivets to bolts, that pretty much sums up the march of technology in a yeah. single <laughs> sentence. But what but re, what really fascinates me about this is that the nail is still not obsolete. So people often ask me, like, which of the seven do you think will disappear in the next few hundred years? And I don't think any of them will, because the nail has proved to be, you know, really enduring, even though we have all these other arguably more sophisticated fasteners. I collect antiquities and I do have some very ancient nails, clearly and wondrously handmade. They go Brilliant. back to the start of metals. I understand we began fashioning them about, what, well, 7,000 years ago? It was in ancient Egypt. It was when, you know, so copper was the first metal that we discovered that showed a little bit of promise as being hard enough and strong enough to become a nail, but even that was a bit soft. And then it was really when bronze came into being, when we mixed copper and tin together, that we were able to create a metal that had some of that staying power and that strength. Um, and then, yeah, it, we took it from there to iron, into steel. And 
So there's, you know, just as you've described this evolution in terms of the different types of fasteners, there's also an evolution in terms of the different types of materials that we've used to create them. The Romans were very skilled in manipulating Indian iron, weren't they? Mass, mass manufacturing nails across, across the empire. They imported iron from the Indian subcontinent. As you said, that was the best iron available in that era. The Iron Age actually started in the east, um, previous to Europe. And they imported this material and had, I mean, they had mobile kilns for their bricks and they had a lot of people making a lot of nails very quickly. So, you know, at this stage, everything is still being hand forged and hammered. And having done this myself in a forge um, <laughs> about two or three years ago, I can tell you it's hard work. <laughs> this is LNL on RN, and we're talking to structural engineer Roma Agrawal, not about her erotic desire to stroke concrete, but about the small fundamental inventions that keep the world turning. Now, there's a phrase that has always annoyed you, don't reinvent the wheel. When you argue, we keep reinventing the thing. Yes, we we do. So um, if we hadn't reinvented the wheel, we would not have wheels for transport. And I think that is such a fascinating thing because we, we think of the wheel as being our mode of transport. But in fact, the wheel was invented for pottery in an ancient Mesopotamia, you know, going back about 6,000 years. And they used it for pottery. They wanted to make robust pots quickly to store food for their growing population. But it took a good thousand to two thousand years for someone to think, oh, what happens if we actually lay this on its side? Um, so then we created a solid wheel for our wagons and carts that developed into the spoked wheel. Once our carpentry skills improved, and then we went into the wire wheel, which is very common on our bicycles today. We reinvented that into gears. And, you know, I can't really imagine any machines without gears. And then also into gyroscopes. So, you know, we have really been reinventing the wheel right from the start, even if it took, there was big gaps between each reinvention. So from the potter's wheel to the International Space Station. Yes, so the International Space Station has got four giant gyroscopes and the momentum of these gyroscopes can be tweaked and moved around so that you can basically use them to maintain the orbit of the ISS. So it's an incredibly important part of, of that um, piece of engineering. I'd like you to introduce us to Josephine Cochran because uh, she was a very important person. Josephine Cochrane was one of the few women who managed to file and obtain a patent. And, and her work was around the dishwasher. So she was essentially a socialite. She used to have people around for dinner and she used to get very frustrated that her 16th century China was getting chipped when <laughs> people were washing it. Um, and when we talk about engineering coming up from a need you know, from a little frustration. So this is a great example of that. And she was then widowed um, and had to figure out how to create some income and a business for herself. And, and we are going back into the 1800s at this point. So she invented the automatic dishwasher and there are different spinning components to it. There are gear-like components to it. And she showed this in one of the world fairs she was the only woman to have an exhibit on, and she managed to create an extraordinarily successful business out of her machine, which got acquired by KitchenAid, which is now a part of Whirlpool. <laughs> so her legacy lives on. And the wash-up, if you'll forgive the pun, is that she finally achieves recognition when she was inducted into the American National Inventors Hall of Fame, heavens above, in 2006. Yes, I mean, she is one of the many examples in my book. I, I talk about a lot of these stories of women, of people of colour that kind of sat often outside the patent system 
whose records got destroyed, who, who didn't want to patent things in the first place, their stories got lost. And one of the really important things for me in this book has been to highlight some of these stories. Decades ago, I wrote a column on uh, the age of string, pointing out that it wasn't just the Stone Age and the Iron Age, but the string age as well, because string is mm. another of your ingredients, isn't it? It's another of your basics. I think that's probably the most unusual one. So I, th I, I love that you wrote about that um, because I think most people, if you ask them what the best inventions in the world are, I don't think string is on their list. Doesn't make the cut. And of course, it, it was doesn't. something that women could do. <laughs> And maybe, maybe that's why. Maybe that's why it was um, underestimated or something. But we only found out about three years ago when um, archaeologists found a tiny, tiny piece of string attached to a Neanderthal tool, that it was actually our cousins who invented string in the first place. And what I find so utterly fascinating about string is that this Neanderthal string, which we believe is now the oldest example of string, was twisted. So they took the fibers of bark, they twisted it to make a strand, and then they took three such strands and then twisted them in the opposite direction to create a fairly robust form of string. And the way we construct string even today is the same. You know, we've got some more techniques and different materials and so on that we might use, but the fundamental remains the same, which I think is extraordinary. And, of course, string made rope possible. Rope made, uh, well, it meant you could tie pieces of wood together and make rafts. You could make fishing lines, fishing nets. It had infinite applications. Absolutely. And I think one of the ones that I loved including in the book, which is, you know, close to my work as a structural engineer, were the cables that hold up some of the biggest bridges in the world. And it's just amazing that, it, again, in the same way the Neanderthals twisted their string, we do a very similar thing to metal wire in order to create cables. So sometimes we twist it, sometimes we don't, we just bunch them up. But the biggest suspension bridges on the planet are held up by a very similar technology to Neanderthal string. Another pun, forgive the twist, but tell us about uh, Stephanie <laughs> Qualek, because she did something else with uh, string-like substances. She made it stop bullets. So isn't that amazing that um, string can be strong enough to resist bullets? And she invented one of the early artificial fibers. So nylon was the first artificial fiber that we created in the sort of early to mid 20th century. And Stephanie Qualek was um, the child of immigrants in the US. And because of the war um, around the 1940s, a lot of men were away and she managed to get a job as a chemist and was experimenting with artificial fibers and almost made a mistake with one of the samples that she was creating, but she persisted and said, let me test this out and realized that she'd created this extraordinarily strong material that we now know as Kevlar, which is used in firefighters' outfits, you know, to protect them from the heat. Um, and it's used in bulletproof vests, as you mentioned. Back to your own origins. You do a great job of uncovering the unsung heroes of engineering, people from historically marginalised or underappreciated groups. Tell us about uh, some of the discoveries that came from elsewhere than the West. Jagadish Chandra Bose, if you please. Yes, so Bose was one of those incredible scientists that whose research spanned a huge range of topics from plant biology all the way to electromagnetism. And he was based in India, which was under colonial rule at the time. Um, luckily, he was able to carry out research. He experimented with electromagnetic waves. So creating these waves, studying how they transmitted and seeing whether he could use waves to send signals far away. Um, and he invented a device that's called the coherer. And without the coherer, the radio wouldn't exist. Um, and he, from day one, always said that he would never patent his work because he believed that knowledge should be available to everyone. Had he done so, he would have been immensely wealthy. Possibly, yes. Um, I guess we'll never know. 
There's another fellow born in southern Iraq. Yes, so I talk about a few different scientists from the Islamic age of golden of science. Um, there's Ibn al-Hatham, who completely revolutionized our understanding of light and how our eyes work. There is Ibn Sahel, who also worked with light and came up with formula to do with the geometry of light moving through lenses hundreds of years before you know, Newton or anybody else in the West was involved in that. Um, and then there's also Al-Jazari, who wrote this incredible book about mechanical devices, which included among them the pump. And he invented the piston and the crankshaft. You know, we might not understand exactly what those are, but we know that they're really important for petrol, diesel car engines. So this was about a thousand years ago. And again, I would say that a lot of the work that these Islamic scientists did in the medieval period was lost or not very well known, but people are starting to uncover these stories now. So much for the dark ages. And speaking exactly. of <laughs> darkness reminds me of lenses. Your personal relationship to the lens, please. So I start off my lens chapter as a letter to my daughter. She's three and a half now, and she would not exist without the lens. And the reason is because she is an IVF baby. So one of my cells and one of my husband's cells were put together in a lab under a microscope, which created an embryo, which was then later transferred back into my body and turned into my pregnancy and eventually into my daughter. And it just really struck me that there are huge advancements in medicine in particular that rely on us being able to see microscopic organisms. So even the COVID vaccine, for example, would not have been possible if we couldn't have seen and looked at it under a microscope. Another magical encounter. Thanks so much, Roma. And uh, you've been very brave because I know you're battling a cold. That was uh, <laughs> Roma Agrawal, author, podcaster, award-winning structural engineer. And her new book is Nuts and Bolts. Seven Small Inventions That Changed the World in a Big Way, and it's published by Hachette. Let's hope we can talk again in the not-too-distant. Thanks, Roman. Thanks for having me again. That's your Bloomin' Lot. Thanks to the team, acting EP Catherine Zengera, producers Anne Arnold, Taryn Priadko, Jack Schmidt and Julie Street. See you next week. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.